Welcome, welcome, welcome to Chutzpah. I am so happy to be here. Gang, we are at an alternative locale today. We are on Bardstown Road here in Louisville in the beautiful St. James Church. My guests and I have the best seats in the house up in the old choir loft with an organ that is 137 years old. It leaves me just dumbfounded. I come up here and just stare at it sometimes. Enjoy just a taste of the epic sound that this organ can make. I hope that you're happy wherever you are, and if you're not, don't look now. But I just called ahead and ordered a flock of birds to follow you around today and coordinate their songs into your favorite tune. They are ready to serenade you, so get your song pick ready and enjoy. All right, enough of that silliness. Put those markers down, folks. My guest is from Louisville, Kentucky and is currently the Director of Worship and Music and the Organist at St. James Catholic Church. He has played many organ recitals and is knowledgeable on everything about organs from their preservation, restoration, and of course, playing them like nobody's business. My boyfriend Jacob introduced me to him during one of their post-mass choir shindigs, and he always impressed me with his stories and abounding knowledge on multiple religious communities here in Louisville. He's never met a keyboard he can't play, and as far as I can tell, he has never met a stranger either. Please welcome your new friend and mine, Pip Hines. Yay. Uh, is there anything you want to add? No, no, it's <laughs> All not. right. Sounds good. Um, so my first question today is what gives you confidence, and do you do anything to help you maintain that on a daily basis? Yeah. I practice, as a performing musician, I practice every day. Um, the confidence that I get from that is that I'm prepared. You'll find that there's a lot of analogy between the sports life, anything in the sports world, and performing musicians, at least I believe so. Uh, Jerry Rice could catch a football, possibly the greatest receiver we've ever had in the NFL. And as he got older, he even practiced longer hours catching the football. Now, the man knew how to catch a football. But he continued to practice over and over so that when the lights came on in the stadium, the crowd began to cheer, and something was actually on the line other than just perfecting his technique, uh, that he'd be ready for it. And any performing musician or performing artist falls into that same category in that we do a lot of practice, in, in my case, in an empty church on a, on a large pipe organ of 2,200 pipes where there's... Um, uh, you know, a lot of variables in the equation as to how the performance is going to go, what sounds I'm going to use. I can't make those decisions on the fly. I can't make those decisions when the choir is singing. I need to have made them in advance that we're going to draw on the trumpet sounds at this point. We're going to have flutes at this point. So confidence I get is from daily practice and preparation that makes me feel like then I've eliminated as many known variables in the equation as I can. And as anybody will tell you, I don't care if it's sports or performing arts, there will always be 
unknown variables <laughs> creep into the occasion. Mm -hmm. Crazy things like a bat flying over my head during a performance one time in a church. <laughs> no. All sorts of interesting things. Uh, uh, when I was to uh, play the uh, one and only dress rehearsal, when I was organist for the dedication of the Cathedral of the Assumption, it was back in, in the 90s, early 90s. And the one and only dress rehearsal, when I went to the balcony to get ready to play, the, uh, the pipe organ was covered in scaffolding. They were still putting the golden stars on the ceiling of the cathedral, at least over that part of the church. And I had to climb through scaffolding and actually have sit with scaffolding over my head and a guy with gold paint in a bucket about 30 <laughs> feet above my head. I was trusting his technique that I, he wasn't going to drop some on my head and I would look like a character in a James <laughs> Bond movie. But anyway, it's little variables like that you can't control. So let's just say if I didn't know my music at that point, there would have been no chance I could have done anything close to a competent performance. <laughs> so that's what gives me confidence, yeah. preparation. That's excellent. Um, so I know we kind of prepped a little bit, but the next question is what is a story of a time when you had some chutzpah? And I know you mentioned you have a couple. So um, go ahead and go for it. Uh, whichever one you think you want to share, you can share multiple as well. Um, and we can pick your favorite. Well, the, the story about the cathedral and that, that that's mm -hmm. actually one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, that actually took something to do that. Um, but I think maybe when I became an organist or thought I wanted to become an organist, uh, I'd studied piano up until fifth grade, and then I quit because I was going to be a professional football player, or so I thought. Uh, I was a fan of the New York Jets. Joe Namath was my hero. Everything I had had number 12 on it. In any case, when eighth grade came along, we hired a new organist at the church where, where I went to church and where I went to school. And this fella played. He played fast. He played the music we were playing um, uh, in the uh, uh, children's liturgies during the week, but but he played them on the organ. He played them played them with a lot of uh, uh, energy. Uh, they were interesting. They sounded good, and I was sort of fascinated by this. Even though I hadn't really played piano except just a little bit here and there from fifth grade up to eighth. So anyway, I was the tallest kid in my eighth grade class. I was center on the basketball team, so I was always sent in before the children's mass through my eighth grade year to put up the hymn numbers on the board. I went in 15 minutes before anybody else came in the church. So I had been watching this new organist play this electronic organ that was in the front of our church. I watched what he did. I sort of tried to memorize what he was, what buttons he pressed down, what he did to make the instrument make sound. And so I came in one day to put up the hymn numbers, and I went as quickly as I could. I got the numbers up in record time, sat down at that organ console, and I thought, okay, he turns this little switch and a red light comes on. Well, that happened. That was the power switch. Then I said, well, he presses this and he presses that and this, and then I played a C major chord using both hands, and the sound to my little ears at that point, eighth grade ears, was like the Mormon tabernacle instrument. I thought, this is incredible. What a cool sound. And then I looked down at where my feet were, and I saw this thing that now I know is a pedal board, of course. And I thought, that looks like a keyboard that you play with your feet. So I played what I thought was a C, and I hear this wonderful bass sound up against the chord I'm playing. And right then, my eighth grade teacher who was a wonderful lady, Sister of Charity in Nazareth Nun, 
came into the church. She never came into the church early. She did that day. And the door to end of the church was right by the organ console. So, I mean, like an apparition appearing out of nowhere, she is standing over the console and staring at me. And there was silence. And then she said, we didn't know you were an organist. And I thought, okay, I can, I can tell the truth and say, no, no, I'm, I'm not an organist. I, I don't have anybody's permission to be doing what I'm doing. I, I'm, I, I have no business uh, sitting here and playing this instrument. And then I figured if I did that, I would be doing punishments uh, probably up until I'd be 85, 90 years old. <laughs> um, and so, or I could, I could lie. And I knew that she didn't worship with our parish community on the weekend. She was with her community of nuns. So I looked right in her eye and I said, well, yes, sister, I am. I am an organist. I'm studying with our new parish organist uh, um, and uh, I'm taking lessons from him. And she looked at me. And I learned something at that point, I guess. Nuns, when they take final vows, they get some kind of grace that they can look right into your heart <laughs> And their baloney meter goes off. Mm -hmm. And I think she detected that right then. But she looked me in the eye and said, okay, that's good. You're now the organist for the children's mass. You start next week. And then she turned around and left. And I thought, oh, no. Should have never lied to a nun. <laughs> so that weekend I had my parents introduce me to our parish new organist. And I, I told him what happened. And he laughed and laughed, and then finally he said, get permission from your parents. Come back here this afternoon on Sunday afternoon, and I'll give you a lesson. Come back Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday after school. I'll come over. I'll give you a lesson, and you'll be ready for the Wednesday Mass. You'll be able to play something. So I got permission from my parents. They thought it was a wonderful idea. And I made my debut as an organist uh, for the Children's Mass, uh, that Wednesday of that week. And uh, there was a girl in the class, actually I had a crush on, um, and she came up to me after Mass and said, that was really neat, and that was cool. You did something with your feet. And after that, I thought, well, this is great. Girls like organists. I'm going to be an organist. <laughs> so that's really how I got started. The only reason I'm sitting here doing this podcast and sitting at a pipe organ that's the third largest in the Catholic Church in Louisville is because I lied to a nun in my eighth grade year. <laughs> I mean, like if that's not some chutzpah, like I don't, I don't know what it is. I well, love it. There was there was another time, uh, years, year, many years later, uh, I'd gone through music school. I hadn't finished grad school yet, but I was I was in finished undergrad. In any case, uh, this was before I got married, and my dad and I were going to make a trip to Ireland. This is long before the internet. This was 1982. And so we went over with a tour group. It was led by one of our local priests, really nice fellow who used to take groups to different places once a year. So I wanted to play the organ in St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. But what really interested me was I really wanted to play the historic organ that's in a church called St. Mikan's Church. Uh, it's actually pretty famous in that Handel, George Frederick Handel, who, of course, wrote tons of music, but certainly the, the famous oratorial Messiah, he, he played the organ there, and he actually preached from the pulpit. Um, and he did that on, when he was in Dublin for the premiere of Messiah. 
which the, his oratorio was not premiered in London. That famous oratorio was premiered in Dublin, Ireland. Well, anyway, I write a couple of letters, send them off by airmail, and of course, and, you know, it takes forever, and I never heard anything. I got over to Ireland with my dad and tour group, and we went to St. Michael's Church. I knew that was on the itinerary, and there were a number of tour buses there. The church is, is again, somewhat famous. And um, so I went up to the sexton who was giving the tours, and I identified myself. I said, hello, sir, I'm, the, I'm an organist. My name is Phil Hines. I'm from the United States. And he says, oh, yes, heavens, yes, we have a letter from you. Our organist, who's a member of the Royal College of Organists, because you can remember St. Michael's was Church of Ireland. It wasn't a Roman Catholic church. So their organist had studied in England and was part of the Royal College. Well, anyway, he says, our organist sends you greetings. And uh, at the end of the tour, we'll be happy to, to let you play the instrument. And I thought, wonderful, I'm going to get to play this famous pipe organ. So we're, we're part of several tour groups. There was a group of Italians. There was several American tour buses, a large contingent. And when we got back toward the back of the church under the gallery railing, the sexton pointed out a beautiful piece of artwork that's on the railing. It's in nearly everybody's music history book. It's a wood carving. It's got, I don't know, a dozen instruments on it, violins, flutes, uh, 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 clarinets, you name it, trumpets. It's a beautiful thing, but right above that is the gigantic organ facade of this famous instrument that dated back into the early part of the 18th century. And the sexton looked at everyone and said, and at the conclusion of our tour, Mr. Philip Hines of the United States of America is going to play a wonderful recital for us on the wonderful <laughs> organ that was played upon by Handel. And the only thing I could think of was, uh, he is? Uh... <laughs> I didn't have any organ shoes. That's the special shoes we organists wear to play pedals. I think I was in a pair of tennis shoes. Uh, I had no music. <laughs> and at the end of the tour, which I don't remember any of the rest of his tour, all I was doing was going through my mind trying to think of what do I remember from memory? What Bach work? What handle work? What can I play without an ounce of score in front of me on an organ I've never seen? With stop with the, the organ stops arranged in a way that I'm sure I've never experienced. And so at the end of the tour, everybody sits down. Back in those days, a lot of people had video cameras that had the big VHS. Uh, the things looked like a giant box. And all these boxes are being pointed up toward the gallery as this sexton <laughs> leads me in a solemn procession of just my dad and me up the balcony steps. And I sat down at the organ, and um, I, I played a recital. Uh, I pulled a lot of things out, out, of, out of my heart and head that uh, I remembered from music school from undergrad and uh, played some Bach and I definitely played some Handel. I remembered part of a Handel concerto and then I played a couple of the works from the water music suite that every organist knows from weddings. And um, all in all, I gave a passable 30-minute program. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but that was, like I said, it was a, a surprise recital. Uh, uh, the surprise was for me, the organist. I didn't know I was going to do it. <laughs> Did your dad kind of know what you had just gotten yourself into? Oh, yeah. As we were walking up the steps, he was laughing and giggling all over me. <laughs> he thought this is hilarious because he could see that I was pretty much, you know, sweating my <laughs> forehead. It's about to bleed from the ears, everything else. I was terrified. But, uh, but I mean, you know, it was one of those things I got up and I thought, I'm just, I'm just going to do the best I can and make this work. Yeah. And then the more I played, the more the energy hit. And there was a feeling that I am playing an organ that, 
George Frederick Handel, one of the most famous musicians in Western music, I mean, along with, you know, Bach, Beethoven, Handel, I mean, you're, you're talking about almost the holy trinity of giants in the music world. Um, that, that gave me a lot of energy. And like I said, by the time the program was done, I was feeling pretty good about things. But then I have to throw out a pun. Uh, I hope your podcast listeners will not be turning this off at this point. Okay, people, take a minute. Think about it. We're about to have a pun about a composer named Handel. Think of all the Handel puns. Okay, take, take a second. Think it through. You, if you think you've got something, I need you to buckle up because what is about to happen triples whatever you just came up with. But I've always enjoyed being able to say that after that experience, I can truly say that I have handled the handles that handle handled. <laughs> it went so much farther than I thought it would. I, I can hear groans all across, all across the podcast universe here. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, well, it is a great connection, too, to just your preparedness. That's like what got you through is remembering. Well, that really was because I, I was never the fastest sight reader in music school. Actually, I, I really wasn't a fast sight reader at all. I've gotten much, much better over the decades. But in music school, I really wasn't a fast sight reader. So actually for my juries, which you always had to do a jury at the end of a semester, I had to pretty much memorize some of the tougher pieces that I were playing. I mean, I really didn't trust myself to read them on the page for a performance. So now that, that helped me out. And, and the fact that I've, I've got a pretty good memory. Now, I'm 65 years old now. I set my car keys down three minutes later. I haven't got the slightest <laughs> idea where they are. But, uh, but in terms of music, there's an awful lot of music still from back in those days that I still have in my memory. Uh, like I said, my reading's gotten a lot better you know, over the decades. Choir work has really improved my sight reading. It does for every organist because you not only have to read your accompaniment, you then have to read the various voice parts and be able to combine those in different ways to help people learn. That is, if you're going to teach the piece effectively. And then once you've taught the piece effectively, you've got to look down to a d different system of music and then, or a different stage and then play your accompaniment. And uh, often the accompaniment is not at all what people are singing. You're, you're establishing rhythm and you're establishing tonality, but oftentimes a true accompaniment uh, is, is not just playing exactly what soprano, alto, tenor, bass would be singing. Right. So, Were you normally, like, were you always playing organ with choirs, or was that a relatively new part, and do you play other instruments? Well, I play piano, and I'm a miserable guitarist. Um, <laughs> I had a terrible indictment on my guitar playing one time when I was playing my guitar in the basement and our cat uh, looked up at me and decided this really wasn't uh, to her liking. Uh, this little cat's gone to Rainbow Bridge, but uh, she she had, uh, I started playing, she was fine until I started playing the guitar and then she uh, got up and left. So I thought that's probably a, a pretty bad indictment, yeah. you know. Um, but no, I mean, I, I play piano. What I'd really, I, I've always said, I, I love brass instruments. Oh, yeah. Most organists will tell you they love working with trumpet or brass quintets, and I've always really loved it. I, I've, I'm blessed to work with a magnificent violinist each and every week and so forth. Um, but the first instruments I got to work with were brass, as mm -hmm. far as along with, well, with, with playing the organ. You know, 
because uh, there's so much music that really works really well with, say, a brass quintet and the organ. I mean, it's grand marches and actually a lot of pieces, uh, pieces that are pretty sublime, like Gabrielli. Uh, I'm, I'm a real fan of Gabrielli's music. Um, that, that, that Italian school is something that's always spoken to me as an I hope as a musician or as a performing artist. So I've tried to play some of the canzonas. And um, there's also some wonderful transcriptions for brass and organ of Gabrielli's choral works, some of his major choral works, uh, where the organ becomes, say, the vocal choir, and the brass plays what would have been the brass part. Anyway, so it, uh, those, are, those are just a lot of fun to play. Um, so, I mean, uh, you know, playing with other instruments, uh, one thing that does for organists, it makes us have to count. Organists notoriously don't have the strongest of rhythm. Think about an orchestral instrument player. Orchestral instrument player, like an oboe or, or a string bass player, someone like it, they might sit around for 20 measures, tacit, not playing a thing, reading an orchestral score while a lot of stuff is going on. Then on that 22nd measure or whatever, they have to come in on a subdivision of a beat and be right on the money. If they can't count, they're dead in the water as far as being an ensemble musician. Now, an organist, if I'm playing a hymn and I accidentally take a, uh, a dotted eighth um, and I accidentally mess that up and I, and I actually play it as a dotted quarter, guess what it just became for the whole congregation singing? It's a dotted quarter because I've got 2,200 <laughs> pipes that just did that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, uh, I have to make myself a lot of times when I'm working with, uh, um, with uh, other instruments I, I pull out my metronome, I mark my scores maybe a little tighter because I've, I can get a little lazy at times on, <laughs> on things like that. And again, it's sort of the nature of the beast. I mean, we organists right. are used to playing, you know, by ourselves. We're the instrument that's playing in a church. I mean, um, in some churches, a pianist may join the organist, but even then, they're probably not doubling everything the organist is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Baptist tradition, that's often the way that's done in worship is the organ and piano will play jointly on hymns. Uh, it's not really the case much in the Catholic tradition. But like I said, working with strings, working with brass, it sort of keeps me honest on, on trying to make sure that if it's a dotted eighth, I play a dotted eighth. <laughs> well, that seems like a great segue, too, to talk about, um, you know, from the two stories that you shared. What did you learn from those aside from learning how to play the organ I guess um, that you still bring into your life today. well both of those incidents are or all three of them really the cathedral performance mm-hmm. uh, um, the St. Mikan's performance the uh, the you know telling the lie to the, my wonderful eighth grade teacher the nun and <laughs> uh, somehow managing then after that going into a career um, it tells you I think that uh it, taking a chance sometimes may may lead to something really wonderful. Like the St. Mikan's thing, I could have easily just said, I guess, uh, well, no, I'm not really going to play a recital. I'm I'm going to go up and sort of play a couple chords, and that way I'm say I've played a famous instrument. But I really enjoyed what I did once I got into it. A lot of times it's when you, I was scared to death when I first played that mass with the children. I mean, with kids, these are all my classmates. Think about it. Your classmates can be unmerciful <laughs> if you mess a bunch of stuff up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, in eighth grade, they could kid you forever. Yep. But but it was a case of where uh, I I think that that any of those experiences they made they made me a stronger player. 
they gave me more confidence in being able to go out and do public performance, each and every one of them. I mean, the one got me started in public performance, even if that was just a, you know, a mass with the, the, the I think, the fourth through the eighth grades. Um, uh, and so I think that you learn that sometimes taking a chance, doing something that's got you a little bit with butterflies is probably a worthwhile thing. Uh, can be a very worthwhile thing. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that, you know, you decide to go ahead and, you know, hang out of a window and just because, it, you know, you think you might want to try rock climbing someday and so you think this is a good idea to start. No, you know, preparedness is the right thing. Um, you want to do something that doesn't, you know, get you ill with anxiety. But taking a chance is a good thing. And I think it, 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 builds, it builds your character. It makes you ready for real life because real life is always going to throw you stuff that you don't. Remember, we talked about practices for the variables I know. Right. Well, real life, there's variables that you don't know that are going to come your way. It might be good to be, be ready for them. And I think events like this and taking a chance, just reaching in, grabbing a little something and saying, I can do this, uh, I think I think it just I think it, it's a life lesson that follows you all the way to the end of that life, and it gives you a great legacy later on. I'm guessing somebody <laughs> down the roads, I'm going to be long gone, and they'll still be telling the story about you hear about when Heinz lied to the nun. <laughs> yep, that's how our organist of 20 years ago started playing. <laughs> that's awesome, and I love that so much too because it's kind of a flip on some other episodes that I've done with people where mm -hmm. it was the taking a chance that was their confidence and then they learned mm -hmm. the whole other lessons but it's a good good bow on top <laughs> kind of story so what did we learn here today I'm gonna do this segment a little bit differently this time because after cutting off the recording with Pip uh, we basically just kept talking for a while, and I learned a bunch of interesting things about the organ and being an organ player. So I'm going to just share a couple of the things that I actually did learn that day. <laughs> I learned about a very famous organ player named Virgil Fox uh, because I asked Pip about the shoes he was putting on. He was switching out shoes, and I was like, are those specifically for playing the organ? And they actually are. There are literally organ shoes and they're just designed to make the whole foot pedal process a lot easier and I he described them kind of like bowling shoes and I asked do you ever get organ shoes that kind of look like bowling shoes you know a little pizzazz that kind of thing and that's when he talked about Virgil Fox because he would put rhinestones on his organ shoes like the fancy flashy man that he was extremely talented he then showed me a bunch of videos of Virgil playing the largest organ in the world which is in Philadelphia and it is called the Wanamaker Grand Court Organ. It's the biggest one in the world, and it's not in a church, people, because organs are not necessarily religious instruments. They're not related to religion. You just often see them in churches because they're so awe-inspiring. This one is in what is now a Macy's. So people shopping at Macy's can listen to the world's largest organ. What a world. I had no idea. Those are just some of the things I learned that day that I thought you all might enjoy as well. But with that, um, we're gonna wrap things up with the wonderful Pip Hines. So take care of yourselves, everyone. I am Bridget Bard. Shalom.